I'm going to ask all of us to kind of think about. Think about a person who really, really bugs you. Or hurts you. This person might be a family member. Maybe a friend. May your boss at work. Maybe your co-worker at work. Maybe a neighbor in your neighborhood. But this person bugs you because of his or her personality, mannerisms, actions, words. Perhaps this person might be hurting you by gossiping behind your back or slandering you or perhaps even elbowing you for position and power in the workplace. So, I'm going to give you 30 seconds or so. Think about a person. I would like you to think about just one person, not many. There might be many. <laughs> but just one person. Perhaps the number one person who bugs you, who hurts you, or who elbows you for position and power in your life. 30 seconds. Think about that person. Don't write it down. Write the name down or anything. Just think about it. Keep that person in your mind as we go through this sermon this morning. Do you have that person in your mind? Can we start the sermon? Because I'm going to ask you to think about that person as we talk about the topic this morning. So in our continuing sermon series on the life of David, this morning we, are, we have come to 1 Samuel chapter 24. It is really a case study on how to deal with people who really bug you, hurt you, or elbowing you for power and position. So, if you have your Bible, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24. And we'll read the story in sections, not the whole thing at once, but in sections. But keep this person that you thought about in your mind, because we are going to learn some lessons as to how to navigate through such challenging and difficult relationships. 1 Samuel chapter 24. And if you are using the Bible from the church, which you call the Blue Bible, it's found on page 314. 1 Samuel 24, on page 314. A little bit of background to this story before I read this. And the story is, up to this point, is that God had rejected Saul as king of Israel. As a result, the Spirit of God had departed from him. 
God then anoints David as king. And the spirit of God, the Bible says, rushed into him. The spirit of God indwells David. He is not yet king, but the spirit of God had departed from Saul and it had come, he had come into David. Now after this, David kills Goliath, the giant of the enemy nation. And people celebrated by saying, Saul has struck down thousands, but David his ten thousands. As a result, Saul becomes jealous of David and seeks to kill him. In other words, both David and Saul are elbowing for the same position. To be the king of Israel and the power that comes with that position. Saul is still the king. With all of his mighty army. And therefore David flees from Saul. Constantly being on the run. And hiding in the deserts and caves of Israel. And that's where we pick up the story. This morning here in 1 Samuel chapter 24. I'm going to read the first seven verses. 1 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, Philistines are the enemy, people of the enemy nation. So they are at war with Israel. So when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheep falls, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose stealthily, cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he has cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now, I would like us to imagine in slow motion what is happening here. Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself. He went to the bathroom. 
taking advantage of the privacy of the kid. In such instances, a person would remove his robe and put it on the side. And that's very normal in that culture. And so Saul does that too. And David's men are appealing in God's name, saying that God has given Saul, or, or given David this great opportunity to kill Saul and take over as Israel's king. So there was peer pressure to kill Saul. So David gets up and goes towards Saul and all of David's men's eyes are on David. Thinking that he's actually going to do it today. Kill Saul and declare himself as the king of Israel. So David walks over closer to Saul and with this weapon in his hand. But to everyone's surprise, which is a surprising twist in this story, David does not kill Saul. Instead, he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe and returns to his men not only that, he feels terrible that he had done this. And afterwards, he persuades his men not to attack and kill Saul. And what David did defies military logic and it defies common sense. So the question is, you know, usually the main idea of a story lays in the twist of that particular story, which is, to everyone's surprise, David did not kill Saul, but instead spares him. So the question is, why does David refuse to kill Saul, even though Saul has been relentless in his pursuit to kill David? And David actually gives his answer in verse 6. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he's the Lord's anointed. David refuses to kill Saul because Saul is God's anointed. That's it. David refuses to strike back at Saul, not because of anything that Saul had done, but because of what God had done. That's the key. David refuses to strike back at Saul, not because of anything that Saul had done, but because of what God had done. And herein lays the first point of the sermon on how to deal with people who bug us, who hurt us, who elbow us for position and power. And here's the first point. God has put his image 
and our spirit on people. Therefore, hold your fire. Don't strike back because attack on people is an attack on God himself. Do you believe that? You see, writing to Christians in the early church, the apostle John said, you, meaning Christians in the early church, have been anointed by the Holy One, God himself. Then the apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Corinth, said this, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and he has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Do you see the anointment? Do you see the Holy Spirit? David spared Saul's life for this very purpose because he was anointed. And he had the spirit of God. Obviously, David did not know that the spirit had left. But there was a time Saul had God's spirit in him. And we are to do the same. Hold our fire and not strike back at fellow Christians because they have the Holy Spirit and they are God's anointed. Obviously, naturally, the question arises, okay, then what do we do with non-Christians? They don't have the Holy Spirit. So what do we do with them? The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, that all people, regardless of whether they are Christians or non-Christians, are created in the image and likeness of God. Here it is in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the words of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And male and female, he created them. What this means is that human beings, regardless of whether they are Christians or non-Christians, are like God and represent God in many ways. Such as in their intellectual ability, their moral purity, their spiritual nature, their dominion over the earth, their creativity, their ability to make ethical choices, etc., etc., etc. Another objection is David... You're talking about before sin came into this world. So what about after? After sin came through our first parents, Adam and Eve. Does this still apply? Do we still have the image of God, the likeness of God? And the answer is yes. Even after the fall, after sin entered the world, the image of God is still there. It was distorted 
but not lust. That phrase is very important. After the fall, after sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, the, the image of God was distorted, but still there. It was not left. And there are several scripture passages to support this particular doctrine, which I won't have the time to go through. And therefore, let me simply quote a theologian. Just one theologian. There are many of them, but one theologian, Wayne Grudem. And here's what he says. Since man has sinned, he's certainly not fully like God as he was before. That is true. Sin has entered the world. His moral purity has been lost, and his sinful character certainly does not reflect God's holiness. His intellect is corrupted by falsehood and misunderstanding. His speech no longer continually glorifies God. His relationships are often governed by selfishness rather than love, and so forth. Yet, man is still in God's image. There is still enough likeness to God remaining in him that, is, that to murder a person is to attack the part of creation that most resembles God, and it betrays an attempt or desire to attack God himself. In the New Testament, the Apostle James extends this beyond murder to include spoken words as well. And here it is, James chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Here he's speaking about the need to tame the tongue, and he says, Tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Notice that phrase, people who are made in the likeness of God. Now, James is saying this thousands and thousands of years after sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. But he still says people were made in the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. In other words, harsh words such as cursing, slandering, gossips, etc. are also a form of striking back at people. This ought not to be, says the Apostle James, because people bear God's image. And there lays the second point of the sermon. Of course, when, when somebody is bugging us or somebody is hurting us, somebody is elbowing us for position and power and all of that, we have to have that conversation. But we do that conversation, and here it is. Plead your case with humility and respect. And let's look at First Samuel chapter 24. The second section, verses 8 through 15. So Saul leaves the cave, not knowing that David had cut off a corner of his robe. And that's where we pick up the story. Verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. My Lord, the king. 
And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. By my hand shall not be, but my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now in those verses, notice several things. Notice first that even though King Saul had already tried to kill David and relentlessly, relentlessly hunts him down, David called Saul my Lord, the King. In other words, David shows such respect, not because of anything Saul had done, but because what God had done put Saul as king over Israel. In the same way, we are to show respect for people, not because of what they do to us, but because God has put his image and our spirit on them. Second, notice also that David bows with face to the earth and pays homage. That is, David falls prostrate before King Saul, face down on the ground. This body language expresses humility, respect, and submission. Then by calling himself a dead dog and a flea, David communicates how insignificant he is before Saul. And that's humility. Throughout his dialogue with Saul, notice that David does not accuse Saul. Instead, he says that Saul may have got misinformation from others. David asks Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Furthermore, David assures Saul of his loyalty. David says to Saul, and I'm paraphrasing here now, Today the Lord gave me into, into my hands in the cave. And my men told me to kill me. They put pressure on me to kill you. But I did not. 
I only cut off the corner of your robe to show that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. And I promise you this, I will not raise my hands against you, for you are the Lord's anointed. You know, as I studied various commentaries, one commentary beautifully summarized it in this way, and I wanted to see it. This commentary says it's much better than I could ever say. It goes like this. Rather than cursing his ruler, David honored him by calling him both my Lord and the king. Rather than falling upon Saul in a murderous attack, David fell upon the ground and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Following these verbal and actional signals of loyalty to the king, David uttered what is perhaps the most passionate and eloquent plea for reconciliation between persons recorded in all of ancient literature. What David did was so unusual at the time. And he was, you know why David was able to do this? Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. God had sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in in him, and he was anointed. And the commentary goes on. In his appeal, David tactfully avoided accusing Saul of being the one who initiated hurtful actions against him. It was not Saul, but unnamed men who concocted the idea that David is bent on harming the king. Having affirmed his support for Saul and disavowed a belief that Saul was ultimately responsible for the problem, David then brought forward evidence to suggest that the premise upon which the attacks against David were based was entirely So, let's think about the person that he thought about earlier on in the sermon. The person who really bugs you. A person who hurts you. A person who elbows you for position and power, perhaps in your workplace. And from this story, in the way that David handled Saul, we learn this. God has put his image and O spirit on people. Therefore, hold your fire. Do not strike back because any attack on people may it be physical, emotional, spiritual, or verbal is an attack on the part of creation that most resembles God and thus an attack on God himself. Of course, have the freedom to plead your case, but do so with humility and respect for the other person. Now there's a third lesson that we learn from this story. And that is this. Trust in God to administer his justice rather than taking matters into your own hands. Trust in God to administer his justice rather than taking matters in your own hands. 
Notice David's words to Saul, not once but twice in verses 12 and 15. And here's what David says to Saul, not just once but twice. In verse 12 he says this, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. Then in verse 15, he says this, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. You know what David is doing here? With these words, David moves his focus away from Saul and looks to an authority that is high above, far above the king himself. Consistent with God's, what, the, what God's word says, in fact, I'm going to quote a New Testament, but you will see the Old Testament portion of it in here as well, that was available at the time of David. Right into the Roman church, the apostle Paul quotes Deuteronomy, and this is what he says. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, that's the Deuteronomy verse, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. David's actions were consistent with that scripture. You know, in this uh, book called Concentric Circles of Concern, the author, Dr. Oscar Thompson, writes this. Do you have people who really bug you? Begin praying right now for the number one person who bugs you. That's what he says. This person may have things going on in his life that you know nothing about. This person may have a deep problem. This person may be in despair. This person needs your love, not to your criticism or striking back at him or her. That was the case with Saul. The Holy Spirit had departed. And he was possessed by something else. And that's one reason he was acting the way that he was acting. In fact... In the Bible, there are two psalms that are attributed to David's prayers as he fled from Saul. And they are Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. Here's how David prayed. Let's look at Psalm 57 verses 1 through 3. And you see the heading on the psalm. It's, it's, the, it's actually the first verse of the psalm. Psalm 57 says this. To the choir master, according to do not destroy, a victim of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. David prayed and trusted in God to administer his justice rather than taking matters into his own hands. 
And let me read a few verses there. It says, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I take refuge till the storms of destruction pass away. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples me. Selah. Here's the other psalm, Psalm 142. A masculine of David when he was in the cave. A prayer. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. David prayed and waited patiently for God's timing and methods. As a matter of fact, it took 13 years before a resolution came and so that God cleared the path for David to become king. In fact, Saul died in a war with the Philistines, not by David's hands. So how about you and me? Can we do that? That instead of striking back, instead of taking matters into our own hands, trust God to administer justice. And we pour out our hearts to God to bring about resolution. to whatever that we are facing through others. A true story is told about a couple, a husband and wife, Frank and Elizabeth Morris. Their son was killed by a drunk driver as she was returning from home, returning home from work one summer night. Coming from the opposite direction, the drunk driver lost control of his car, crossed the median, and hit their son head on. Their son was only 18 years old at the time. 
eagerly looking forward to going to college that fall. Somehow, the drunk driver reached a plea bargain that allowed him to be free on probation. True story. And Elizabeth Morris began having revenge fantasies in which she would kill him. Have you had those kinds of fantasies? About the person who bugs you, hurts you, elbows you for position and power? But as a Christian, she knew better. So instead of taking matters into her own hands, Elizabeth decided to take her pain to God in prayer. And during one of those times, God reminded her of two things. First, the drunk driver bears God's image. And that any attack on him will be an attack on God himself. Second, Elizabeth herself would be a criminal if not for God's grace and his innocent, innocent son's murder on the cross. Elizabeth knew, knew right away that she has to forgive the drunk driver who killed her son. So she went to see him. She told him she wanted help. During the conversation, she found out that this man came from a broken home and has struggled with alcoholism all his life. In other words, she found out that he needed help. Remember what we talked about. We don't know what's going on in other people's lives and because that might be the root cause for be behaving the, the way that they behave toward us. So Elizabeth and her husband Frank began building a relationship and talking to him about Jesus. One night, the Morrises and this former drunk driver drove to their church we have Frank Morris baptized his son's killer. That's what 
spirit-filled, born-against Christians do because they are given power to do those kinds of things by the Holy Spirit that indwells them. Today, actually, we sang, we are more than conquerors in Christ. But here's the picture that I want to leave with you as I conclude my sermon this morning. In the Old Testament, a person by the name Lamech, he was actually the father of Noah, struck people back with excessive force. We read about it in Genesis chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. This is what he says. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. That's one option. If somebody bugs us, hurts us, elbows us for power and position and whatever else, we have the option to strike back with excessive force. That was Lamech. The Israelites who lived during the time of Moses struck people with equal force. And that's what we read about in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 19 and 20. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. That's an option available to us. Then Jesus came along and said this in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, quoting Moses. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Then Jesus goes on to say in verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hurt your enemy. But I said to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. But if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So I have a picture for you. It is a continuum from Jesus to Moses to Lamech. Lamech hit with an excessive force. During the Moses' time, people hit the other with equal force. And Jesus calls to a different standard. Don't strike back. Hold your fire because I have placed my image and likeness on people. And in Christians, my Holy Spirit. Have 
have the conversation, all right, but do it with humility and respect for the other. And then leave it to me. The vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and you just pray rather than taking matters into your own hands and let God do whatever that he wants to do. Wait for God's timing and methods. That's Jesus' way. The choice is ours. And I hope that we choose Jesus' way, which cannot be done if not for the Holy Spirit who indulges us and gives us the power to do so. May that be the case in all of our lives. Let's pray. Father God, these are very, very powerful words. Harder to hear. Harder to, harder to hear, but it's easier to preach, but it's harder to live out. And I need your help. My brothers and sisters need your help as well. In the days and months and years ahead, Lord, help us as we encounter people who bug us, hurt us, elbow us for power and position. In such a way, your name is honored and glorified in and through our lives. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.